Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Over the last three weeks, we've had the Brittany Higgins allegations. We've had Grace Tame speaking so powerfully. We've had Chanel Conscious's petition about young schoolgirls and sexual assault. I actually think that you add all of those up and you actually say, we are talking on every one of these about the risk of women who are sort of between 15 and 25 years of age being exposed to sexual violence and not having mechanisms to either get justice, but also a community that's not responding properly to this. Hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to another episode of the show. You are with Catherine Murphy, the host, and I'm also political editor of Guardian Australia. And with me in the studio in Sydney, waving to Kate, is Kate Jenkins, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, who I think it's fair to say is a very, very busy woman, uh, just... Just at this point in time. Just a little. Just a little, yeah. So anyway, I thought it would be a good idea to bring Kate into the studio this week because if you've been following the political news closely, you'll know that Kate has inherited a new assignment and that is to look into Parliament House as as a workplace and bring the lens of her considerable experience to try to sort out how to make it a better workplace. Now, we're going to get into the review in a tick, Kate, but I just want to reverse this up for a second because the last time you and I spoke on this pod was when you were doing your previous review of the prevalence of sexual harassment in Australia. And of course, you brought down a really interesting report about a year ago. It's sort of amazing. It feels like about 10 years ago, doesn't it? But yes. like it, it, was, yeah. it was a year ago and it made... Uh, some interesting recommendations, important recommendations, but just I want to get back to some research that I remember very well at the time that was undertaken for the commission. It found that one in three people had experienced sexual harassment at work over the last five years and that 71% of respondents, I think, in that survey said that they had been harassed at work at some point in their lifetime. This is staggering, isn't it, like the prevalence? It is, it, it is staggering. And I, I think um, the conversations over the last three weeks, and we will get to that, I know, but I think some of the reasons why so many people have been really affected by the reporting about Parliament, but also about the schoolgirl sexual assault and about Grace Tame's experience, is that that high rate, sort of three quarters of the community have been sexually harassed sometime in their lifetime. One in five women, one in 20 men have been sexually 
sexually assaulted or experienced sexual violence. So I think when there's this high rate of discussion about the experience, but also really a sense that nothing has changed, Mm. we've definitely triggered not just people who work in parliament to feel quite despairing and to remember experiences and to feel powerless. So one of the first, I guess, opening this as well as uh, recognising the lands that we're on, I would say that people listening to this and who've experienced over the last few weeks, there has been a real mood of how do we kind of look forward with hope. And I'd encourage people, certainly we've got 1-800-RESPECT, but to seek help because because we've also been through COVID, this, you know, I have a lot of empathy for the experiences that some people have been speaking to me and it's really heartbreaking to see the pain that it's caused. But I hope I'm part of the hope in mm. um, why this might be a turning point. Yeah, it's important to validate that. And I'll, I want to get to I want to get to the turning point that we're at a bit later in the conversation, because I think that's a really important well, I, I believe it's true and I also think it's an important message of hope that we need to give listeners because it's interesting you say that. I've also been overwhelmed by people wanting to share, wanting to mm. talk. It is the most extraordinary Mm. sort of few weeks that we're living through uh, and people just wanting to connect about these experiences. So uh, with that in mind, obviously you produced your report 12 months ago. It's been with the government. Nothing's happened. Why? Yeah, so, and it was, I think, almost symbolic that the announcement of Senator Birmingham of the independent review was on the 5th of March, and our report was tabled in Parliament on the 5th of March 2020. So, what has happened over that time? We do know that originally COVID hit, and I think certainly my plan was to share, but really to work with government to push for implementation. But in fact, what happened was we all know what happened in um, the Commonwealth Parliament, but all our state parliaments, just whatever was happening, it was pens down and straight to just the day to day of how, you know, both legal and policy changes that had to come into place. Over the year, what has been really interesting has been the build over the year. So my fear at that time was people would say, this isn't an issue. We would go back to where we were, those high prevalence rates that are extremely concerning. We know are in our day-to-day work experience lives. Suddenly that would be not seen as important. What's important Mm. is whether people keep their jobs and, you know, like the really devastating effects of COVID. But if I give you a sort of sequence over the year and that journalism has been important to this I think is the reality of those experiences of harassment and assault have continued and on the 22nd of June everyone was shocked anew when we read about the High Court. So the Chief Justice put out a statement saying we have had an investigation, we believe you and we apologise that six of our associates were harassed by a Chief Justice. Now, that, I think that moment really then re-engaged. Obviously, Attorney General's Department has a connection with the High Court. They mm. are independent. Mm. And so I think a whole lot of people picked up the report again from then and then with the University of Adelaide incident and then the AMP incident and now the Parliament incident. But they picked it up and they looked at the bits that were particularly about industries and about workplaces and what you do to fix there. 
In October, government did announce as part of the Women's Economic Security Statement some funding for some of the RECs to be implemented. And I'm looking forward to a bit more action on that. We have been consulted, but I actually think that I appreciate actually people's impatience about why that hasn't happened. And and I understand there is some movement, but I can't speak for government. And I, you know, I haven't seen, I think, the action yet on those recommendations. But over the year, we have done a lot of work towards, so working with the legal sector, working with science, working with universities, working in the finance sector. There's been a lot of movement with the superannuation investors. So we're doing multiple initiatives that have really driven out of our, actually out of the private sector and even the public sector a bit about how do you solve it on the ground. So the Mm. recommendations in the report do some go to employers, some go to the federal government and some go to state governments. I think we haven't had a formal response. And while some funding has been granted, we haven't seen the action yet. Mm. And I actually, I mean, my sense is, you know, these events have really made everyone think. On one hand, the year was feels like it was ages ago. On the other hand, I think people went, oh, whoops, it's a whole year down the track. It's and been a year. We yeah. better get onto it. So, yeah. yeah. So that's what's happened. And I think too, uh, obviously, yeah, some sort of progress. But what's your sense? And, and I know you can't and shouldn't speak for the government. You're completely independent of the government. And it's great to hear about the sexual work, right, that in the sense that private in, in the private sector, the penny might be finally dropping, that you might actually need to do something about this. But in some of your recommendations were quite substantial in the sense of putting an obligation on employers to provide safe workplaces, in essence. Yeah. That's a really big change. Do you think the government's on board for for those sort of structural changes that will not, you know, some business associations, I'm sure, would be in their ear saying, oh, excuse me, look, we're all up for the work and we're all here volunteering together and it's all yep. going to be great, yep. but we don't, want, we don't want an obligation, thanks very much. So do you get any sense that there might be some pushback? So when we did the piece of work, we had a reference group that included unions, business, academics, so eight eight different organisations that include, included Safe Work Australia. And we the recommendations we came up with were actually we digested a lot of that opposition. Mm-hmm. They are quite practical. And my sense is, I think there's a couple of things the report did that has worked really well. It came up with the new way forward. It accepted that people had wanted to stop sexual harassment, but they did did need to be responded to in a different way. And that was in workplaces, but also under the laws and in primary prevention. And we were part of a movement anyway. So that's the first thing I would say. We came up with new solutions. We had, we spent the 18 months really, really ventilating those objections. And whilst there might at the point of launch there, there wasn't from everyone. So even sort of the small business, so Cosboa and AIG, you know, that, that of course, 55, they won't agree with everything, but most of it they did agree with because mm. this sexual harassment is a really unproductive, you know, this is to be ruthless as a business person. It's an unproductive fact and none of them really, it wasn't helping their businesses. 
So my sense, though, as those events have unfolded over the year is that businesses are just as interested in the statutory reform and the solutions as individuals because we're really seeing the cost of this. But as I think AMP would say, um, workers aren't tolerating it now. The media is not letting it alone. Uh, The customers are not happy with it. And then the superannuation investors demanded more. So those organisations, and I'm not picking AMP as the only one, Mm. how it's been done in the past, they all said that's not working and no one's going to let us keep hiding this under mm. under the carpet. Mm. Um, so my sense about when the headspace is put to the recommendations, I might be being optimistic, but I actually think most of the comments that have been made, particularly to me in the last month, have been actually we've looked and they're actually really practical, sensible recommendations. There's nothing in there. So there is encouraging a positive duty that already exists in Victoria anyway. There is really a statement saying this is a work health and safety issue already. Safe Work Australia has issued some guidance. So you need to start using those approaches. Actually, it's like a light bulb. All these people that have been saying sexual harassment's about one ba- bad bloke and now <laughs> saying, oh, sexual harassment is a, a risk to the psychological health and maybe we should focus on, you know, people's actual experience, their welfare, you know, this idea of victim-centric. So we'll probably get to it. But the Mm. question I'm asked is, what about fair process? It's like, well, actually, most of the time people aren't complaining. What's happened to the welfare of your workers? And just it's just a small switch, but it feels like a radical switch for some people who've assumed that sexual harassment is only a problem when it's occurred and it's only done by dinosaurs or old mm. men who really are out of date and they're all going to die off, you know, with, <laughs> they're going to be extinct. And uh, that's, you know, our, our research says that's not what it is yeah, like at all. that's not the case, yeah. Okay, so let's bring ourselves to the workplace of the parliament now and your, your new commission. Now, you've said variously over the last couple of days, and it's certainly my view that Parliament is an unusual workplace. So I know what I mean by that. What do you mean by it? So, and and this is why, even though people are kind of saying, you're doing this review, haven't you done the work? So Respect at Work was about all workplaces. But one of the areas that I really, there's a number of things we concluded, but one of them was that that we were getting real traction when you took an industry focus. So sexual harassment happens everywhere. If you work in retail, if you're in mining, the odds are you've experienced sexual harassment, particularly if you're a young worker. But recommendation 47, and I will admit that not everyone knows every recommendation by number like I might, um, (laughs) is really promoted that you should industries should come together and take an industry approach. And there was a few reasons for that. But one of them was um, if you all say, you know, AMP is the bad employer, then all the other ones, are, you know, in the finance sector are like, just as long as we don't get in the paper, then we're, you know, we're going to be we're fine. We're all OK. Yeah. We're, so it sort of drives everyone to just pretend that they're, you know, someone else is the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so collective work in an industry looks at what are the characteristics of that industry that create risk. So to some degree, when this issue came up, and I'm doing particularly work in the legal sector, if I use that, and then I can explain the parliament as a workplace in the legal sector when that a high court reporting happened the great thing was the reporting didn't 
focus as much on there's one problem man. It yeah. did say if this can even happen at the heady heights of the high court, what is going on in the legal system or particularly in the court system that allows this to happen? Like what could we do? And so in the legal sector, they started asking about the systemic risk. And that's a sector where um, it's very interconnected. You know, you have the law firms and the in-house counsel and barristers and judges and associates. Everyone's career, I mean, I'm a lawyer by trade, so I know this by background, is interconnected. Your progression depends on both the training from those more senior people. They hold your entire career in your hands. Mm. Um, There's lots of word of mouth. There's still predominantly men at the top, notwithstanding that there's lots of people across the system. And your relationships and your reputation uh, mean everything. So there's multiple things going on that mean that people in power have the opportunity to um, and, and in a court setting, isolated chambers where there's just a judge with a very junior, you know, an associate, that's kind of there's a range of factors that create the risk. So the legal sector is starting to unpick that. Now, when I think, and this not to foreshadow what I'm going to find, mm. but if I just take that approach, I could do that with almost any industry. So medical industry, mining, I can tell you here's the six or seven factors that make this unique and could create risk for safety. So when I think of, and you will know this better than me and everyone's already ready to tell me. So what have you got? You've got highly competitive and highly sought after roles, you know, the dream job. You've got people in ultimate power, you know, right up to the top. You've got elected officials that can't be disciplined or sacked in the way that in a normal workplace. You've got particular employment structures that don't have the same um, mechanisms that apply for most workers or the unfair dismissal system and ideas behind that. You have a press gallery whose job, you know, I think the normal community, I don't think I truly understood that in Parliament House there's actually a whole, you know, kind of press gallery whose job it is to watch what's going on. So the scrutiny is on hyperdrive. Uh, You've got the loyalty to the party. So you can probably get And then I haven't even started. I know it's not right to say fly in, fly out, but everyone leaves their home. Uh, you've got these huge age differences. You're all living, working 24-7, high pressure. Like there are... So when I say six or seven criteria in most industry, when I start thinking and I'm not even in this Mm. workplace. Yeah, you're not even there. There are so many elements of the working in that. It doesn't mean that you're going to have terrible people. It means that the risks, you know, the things that you need to put in place for safety, we probably need to think about what are those risks and make sure that they're not, you know, unfettered. Yes, and the legal comparison is a really interesting one, and that's obviously your background. So you can, you can bring that quickly. set of experiences mm-hmm. very, very quickly and project them into the new environment. And obviously, we need to be clear with listeners. Kate's been clear, but I'm also clear that I'm not asking her to preempt her own inquiry. We're just setting out some some foundational principles that will guide her in her work. Now, I know the government sort of came to you because Simon Birmingham said it publicly. I, I don't know, maybe a week or ten days before you before it all came together and it was crystallised that you were the reviewer. There was quite a lot of talk around my neck of the woods that there would be perhaps a reference panel or perhaps a, a discussion 
with some previous staffers or previous parliamentarians that may inform your work. There was also a conversation about whether Brittany Higgins might be involved in trying to inform the direction of the inquiry, obviously, with her own terrible allegations. So before you saddled up, as it were, before you were given the job, have you had some conversations in the background with various people? Have you spoken to Brittany Higgins? Have you spoken to others? And and if so, what did you learn? So in terms of those conversations, those early establishment conversations are about to happen. But so, no, I wasn't. In terms of, um, I know Simon Birmingham was doing conversations, which were really, as I understand it, cross-party and, you know, what he said on the record and he's talked to staff and he's talked to unions to really get everyone to sign up, which I fundamentally thought was the most important foundation. If one party was doing this, then it would go back to my concern about, you know, if we think it's just in this spot when in fact we know it's systemic, it won't achieve the same things. Just probably to give you a sense of why it's not just me, but why the Human Rights Commission was engaged to do this work and what it looks like in practice and then what I might be doing next, because I know and I'm really grateful that lots of people have already asked lots of questions about how it will work. We have humanrights.gov.au. There's already a website. It was up from the day it was announced and people can register their interest. We've already received some submissions. We're Mm -hmm. doing ethics process to make sure that we've got all the protections in place to ensure that gathering this information is done in a trauma-informed manner and in the right way. But part of the reason why it was a combination of me as part of the commission was that this is something that the commission has a particular core expertise. And so I've been involved, you know, my predecessor did the review of the treatment of women in defence I've been involved with doing the research of the 39 universities. We did the National Inquiry. I'm currently undertaking a review of athlete experience in gymnastics. The methodology we use in doing that is to combine best practice and research, which we're in the unique position of having a National Inquiry. So normally, so we're not starting from standing start, but also having, creating a mechanism for people to be able to share their experiences confidentially if they want anonymously, but in a way that is secure from their point of view. So we can learn from their experiences and bring them all together to come up with those practical solutions going forward. And the important thing is to distinguish that from the support mechanisms that are in place. So Stephanie Foster in PMNC has been talking to me and she said the government has set up the sort of 1-800-RESPECT and that's not what it's called. I think it's 1-800-APHSPT, mm-hmm. but the, the number for supports. So she spoke to me really early and that was my first is this is number one. People, if they're struggling, they need supports. The other mechanism which we will provide information, but if people actually want an individual justice outcome or to use, you know, to go through the mechanisms, then that's also available. But our review is to look at the systemic issues, but to mm-hmm. do that, through gathering the individual experiences. So I guess because whilst there was speculation, we have a great team. We're not big. So we are standing up a bigger team really pretty quickly. We're already working on an ethics application. We've got the 
sort of sprung into action and we absolutely are ready to go. But my immediate is to talk to a range of people just to make sure we are looking in the right spots for information. But we will in coming um, months have that mechanism open for people to come to us in the time that they need to tell the stories in the way that they're comfortable. And we will also be putting out requests for information to different parts of government and talk to police. I've already spoken to Reese Kershaw about. So we know there's lots of different bits. So the process will be a bit more of those conversations about what people really, um, you know, what what we know what we think should be covered, but we know that that's not going to be everything. Mm. Then make sure there's the mechanism. So we'll be sort of running two things at one time. We'll be open for submissions and interviews with all the protections in place. And we'll also be doing research both nationally, but globally on particularly the work in other parliaments about uh, sort of the Me Too conversations in other parliaments have really been alive and well since 2017. Mm. And uh, and look, I I fully appreciate the sensitivity of some of the, you know, the inquisitions you're going to be embarking upon, right? And and I understand why you, why it would be very important to set up the capacity for people to approach anonymously if they want or in positions where they, they feel their identity is protected. I completely understand that. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand why that would be the case. However, it, it sort of would be good I think somehow, and I'm and I'm interested in your view about this, whether or not the inquiry can, as we say in journalism, show its methods a little bit too, in order to sort of get a broader buy-in or to have people understand that this is, to the extent that it's possible to be, a transparent process, right, what you're going through. So how do you draw those, how do you put that together? I think that must be quite difficult. Yeah, difficult, but actually that is really key. So what we know, if I just go and we haven't finished the review of gymnastics, but none of these are the same. But, you know, if athlete and you're a junior athlete, then there are some real fears about coming forward, about telling your story, that it will affect your entire sort of life stream. So what we know from that is we do need to give as much information as we can about the process to, so there's a couple of things that that in fact were very much at the upper of all the parties in engaging us was our independence, that mm. the original suggestion I think was somehow a par- department of government would yeah. be do that. Yes. Yes. And sorry. So, so there, the, the, and that message, we didn't have to say it. That message was loud and clear. And so, even though sometimes our independence, you know, people's like, you're too independent, it suddenly it was recognised. So, our independence was critical, but yeah. also our expertise in victim centric, like we deal with human rights and disclosures of really deeply difficult. And we can't do that in a way that causes further harm. So we are at the moment on our website or daily, we are adding, we're getting questions and we're adding more information. And as we go, we will absolutely be telling as much as we can in terms of what's going on. I already expect, we, because people have said, we'll be getting submissions from organisations with expertise. You know, it might include unions and these will be things that anything's published will be totally de-identified. But if anyone wants to publish what they put, then I think that will 
become on the public record. So I think that will be entirely, there'll be a lot of protections about that because the reality is this is going to be a good piece of work provided people can come forward safely. Yes, And exactly. that it, it doesn't turn into a big, you know, kind of argument about who did what to whom when that is not what we're doing. We yeah, are looking it, for best practice and we're looking for solutions. Yeah. And I think we're going to hear some bad things because we know across the board, you know, one in five Australians have been in their lifetime experienced sexual violence, one in 20 men, sorry, one in five women. So we know that those, you know, when I did the universities piece, all these students came forward, people kept saying, do you think there'll be, you know, sexual assault? And well, we know statistically, absolutely, because of the age group and the, you know, so we know that there will be those stories because it's not like this is not part of the community, but we are, our task is to find solutions. There's huge demand, but actually finally there's, I think, political will for those solutions. Nobody mm. has said to me, of all the people I've spoken to, but particularly in, in Parliament, no one said, yep, we think it's fine. Like no one, this is the first time, you know, I've done work before the 39 unis, there were definitely some of the unis who said we don't have this problem and then they got the research that. But actually at this moment in time, at not just across all workplaces but in parliament, no one's saying we're good. They're saying we we want to know how we can be we better. We need this to be different, yeah. Mm. But still the rubber is going to hit the road here though at some point, isn't it? I mean, not without sort of prejudging your inquiry, but it's pretty obvious what's required will be a sort of more normalised human resources environment, right, in politics. Like that's just obvious even before you go in, right, that that's, that's what's missing now and that's what everybody says they need in order to have any confidence of pursuing various claims for all of the reasons we've outlined, right? So, but that's, so that's, Kat, Catherine, can I say to that, I'd encourage you to do a submission first. <laughs> <laughs> but secondly, the only reason why I'm not prejudging is whilst you say that, when I did the national inquiry where good HR functions are in place, yeah. there was still a concern about yeah, how. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm not... Like, I'm not completely done on that. I think it's going to be a mix of factors that lead to safer. And I think it's going to, I, I know from looking at like New Zealand, the UK, there are some mechanisms. Democracy requires certain things to be yes. in place and we want yes. the best democracy. But there are some models, which is exciting. So we've got some other places that we can look and we can ask how they went and what worked and what didn't work. Um, but I'm not as settled on, it is something about the supports the independence and the reporting mechanisms, that's definitely going to be at play. But also how all those power structures work. I mean, it's pretty, you know, yes, I do, I know you're asking these crucial. questions, Catherine, but I know I'm looking at you. So our, our <laughs> review, because you're in Parliament House. So the review is, you know, even Senator Birmingham was really, has been really terrific in establishing this and, and sort of talking to all the parties. But the conversation was what would the scope be who's covered and so it 
whilst lots of people will have a view, it is open to current and former staffers, parliamentarians and anyone who works in a parlam- the parliamentary workplace. So the reality is I look at you and think, oh, you know, this you is you. You want, to see, you want to see my submission, Kate yeah, Jenkins. Yeah, it will be de-identified <laughs> and no one will know. <laughs> well, I've got a few ideas, so I may in fact actually punt them your way. The other, just quickly, because I want to get into the moment, right, which is where we started at the start of this conversation, and that's where I want to end, that moment of hope, that moment of transformation, right? But just before we get there, I think the other thing that's been kind of going around in my mind about this without prejudging, and you're right to school me about, you know, we can have the most perfect HR set up in the world and it still be crap, right? Like, that's absolutely right, right? But the other thing that sort of is raised about parliamentary staff in a negative sense is that there's not accountability mechanisms for parliamentary staff. In a way, they're, they're this sort of terribly exploited, vulnerable, in, in the power sense, in the power dynamics, quite a vulnerable group of people. But they're also a very powerful group of people in terms of their proximity to power. David Zodi, for example, recommended in his review of the public service that a, minute, that a, that a code apply to parliamentary staff so that there would be more accountability for them as well. I wonder if there's something in a trade-off between more protections, more normalised protect workplace protections and a little bit more accountability or is that beyond your scope, do you think, in terms of what you're looking at? I, I, don't, I think that's within. The terms of reference are really broad and I think that's absolutely within it. If I think about even in the very short time and the sort of people are actually have lots of thoughts about this. Some of the things that have been mentioned to me is just the demographics and the, you know, that young staffers and then the challenge of the lifestyle of parliament and difficulties with travel means that there's, you know, kind of a mid period of age group where people for family it's reasons completely absent. Yeah, don't. Yeah, that's a big so there's, deal. Yeah. There's demographics. There's also professional development and, you know, including of ministers, you know, when they come in, they're elected. So none of these, <laughs> I don't have the answer, but people are raising, you know, some, there's this, oh, these politicians have never worked anywhere else, but they understand the system. And you bring in people who've worked everywhere else, but never worked. And, you know, so there's a yes. lot, a lot of different And I think this is the privilege of being able to do a focused piece of work is actually all of these things are relevant and putting them together and then working out what's the most practical solution to unpick that is really important because I think education and skill development and capability is important and then accountability is also important. I agree Mm. with that. Yeah, okay. Interesting. So... Oh, <laughs> let's think about the moment we're in because you genuinely think that you that we've reached a point of transformation, right? Why do you think that? I think that partly because I, like lots of people, have been working on gender equality and looking at gender-based violence for a long time and we know that fundamentally there are some real issues about gender and treatment of women that underpin our community and that in my career, my professional career of 30 years, I've never felt a moment, like it's just intuitive. I've never felt a moment like this. I also think in Australia, it we have changed other things. People always talk about, you know, smoking and drink driving and a range of different things. 
I think that we're a slow build on that change. And I actually think the moment we've had this last month, I'm saying month now, but really, you know, the three weeks since that project interview and the um, Sam Maiden reporting of the Brittany Higgins allegations, that in that period, there is a sort of a sequence since the Me Too conversation that has built on our community understanding, including with our inquiry coming out and they're being better like we've got some better answers but also the the rolling issues over the last 12 months that have really proven that even in a COVID world these are still issues so I feel like that we've kind of come to it had to get this bad for everyone to piece it together but I also would say over the last three weeks we've had the Brittany Higgins allegations we've had Grace Tame speaking so powerfully we've had Chanel Contus's petition about about young schoolgirls and sexual assault. We've had, and and I do know and work with defence, we've had the conversation about the Chief of Defences. And and I've got separate views, so I I think we need to look at that and learn rather than criticise that. But I actually think that you add all of those up and you actually say we are talking on every one of these about the risk of women who are sort of between 15 and 25 years of age being exposed to sexual violence and not having mechanisms to either get justice but also a community that's not responding properly to this. This has all happened in such a compressed time frame. It's got us hyper hypersensitized, in some cases traumatized, but actually as a general, like you look at that none of the reporting is saying stop complaining about this. Everyone's saying how did this happen and how can we change it? So add those things and then I guess my hope is Yes, this piece of work is just about parliament, but as, again, Senator Birmingham said at the start, everyone does look. When I was doing the National Inquiry, there were comments about, well, how can we expect to have respectful workplaces when you see question time and they're yelling at each other? And, you know, there is, even though the majority of people are not, they're affected by what the decisions are, but they do look and hope to see something better. So I think that an independent review with cross-party with the commitment for change is actually a huge contributor to everyone's workplace. And that's why I think we've got the combination of the public appetite, some of the expertise, and then a real commitment to take action. And without all of those things, nothing will change. But with all of those things in Australia, we you know, we're prepared to move and it's absolutely, I say all that being optimistic, but it's really disgusting that women and girls are still facing these issues and some men as well. And we Mm. just need to change it. And some Mm. of that is about some practical things. And some of that is about a truly equal society where women and men and people of all diversity have the equal opportunity to reach their full potential. Mm, yeah, I think I totally agree. Equality's at the root of it. And it's a lovely note to end on. Thank you, Kate. I appreciate it. Just drawing listeners' attention to the fact that there will be some marches around the country on Monday. You can read about those if you are interested, obviously, in Guardian Australia and on other platforms. There's a lot of organisation going through social media at the moment. So there's lots of ways of finding out about that if you want to participate in that march next week. Thank you, as always 
to Miles Martignani, who's the executive producer of the show. Thank you to Hannah Izzard, who cuts the show for us. Thank you to you guys for listening, sharing, reviewing, all of that stuff. We'll be back with you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.